You're listening to the weekly podcast of the services at Stonegate Fellowship Church in Midland, Texas. For more information about Stonegate, visit StonegateFellowship.com. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and... Uh, am I on here? Let's go ahead and get started. Hey, Dean. Leon, you might have to push me a little bit uh, just because of my voice. It's good to be back with you. Uh, thanks for letting me be virtual me with you last week. And... Uh, uh, for for those who uh, have already asked, it was an awesome experience. And uh, so if you ever get a chance to go to the World Series, you should go. Um, and uh, unless the Rangers are playing because they're not going to win. So anyways, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, facts are facts. All right, let's pray and then we have a lot to cover. Father, thank you for the day that you have blessed us with. Whether it's a day we're looking forward to um, or it's a day that we kind of hold in neutral right now because we're just kind of waiting to see or we have great anticipation. The scriptures say this is the day the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. So we want to tell you this morning that we trust you um, and help us to live that trust out and not just to say it. Would you please open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word Give us wisdom so we can see what you're doing in each of our lives. Give us insight and understanding to know what the next steps are we're each supposed to take in our walk with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, take your Bibles, open them up to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter three. Let's lay some foundational work here and then we will finish this chart uh, this morning. At least that's the... Anticipation. Um, Hebrews chapter three. So since it's all men in this room, best I can tell, um, typically on Sundays, and my son Chapman has me figured out, he says, Dad, you get, you're a master at turning your microphone off when you, sneeze, when you, when you uh, do that. And uh, so I'm just not gonna worry about you, okay? If I need to do that, I'm just gonna do that, okay? If I need to hack a loogie, I'll just do that. So I'm not worried about you. If that offends you, uh, that's right. Um, I didn't say it, Dean did. So, although I, I was, the other day I was listening to a speaker who said, you know, I used to not, I used to use the word get over it and then I thought people were offended. Then I realized get over it meant build a bridge to the other side. So I'm gonna start using get over it again. Just build a bridge to get better, okay? So Hebrews chapter three, Find your way to verse 12. From there, we'll go to James chapter one. From there, we'll go to Romans chapter five. From there, we'll go to the whiteboard. Hebrews chapter three, verse 12. Take care, my brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that would lead you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin key phrase, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, understanding that every single one of us are highly susceptible to the hardening of sin, and we must learn to guard ourselves in that regard. James chapter one, you just have to turn a few pages to get to James chapter one. James chapter one, verse two. James one, verse two. Count it all joy or rejoice. Actually, rejoice would be an understatement. He says, count it joy, which means you have to make that choice. There has to be a deliberate choice to say, I am choosing to count this as a blessing in my life 
when you meet various kinds of trials. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. You might read that without making fun of, giggling, holding back, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Skip to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Move over to Romans chapter five. Back to the left, you'll have to go a little ways to get to Romans chapter five. Romans five. Romans chapter five, we'll begin in verse one. We'll read through verse five. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. As repetitious as this might be, let me remind you that when you read into this grace, it is not just an unmerited favor and salvation, but it is an, an abundant supply for the need of the moment. And that is also unmerited. So grace is not just a salvation issue, it is a supply issue. When you walk in grace, you don't just walk in the grace of your salvation, you walk in the supply made possible through that salvation. So let me read that again. Verse two, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse three, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right, let's go back to this chart. <clears throat> if you don't have a copy of the chart, I don't have any more with me, so um, um, maybe we can supply some later and uh, we'll get back to it. So I covered last week, which was really kind of the weirdest thing I've ever done. I've never preached to an empty room. You know, I've always feared that. I always feared showing up on Sunday and there being an empty room. So now I know what that feels like, but um, it was really weird. So anyways, um, We've, we've talked about all the issues you face, every legitimate need where the enemy comes at you in all of your legitimate needs. It's not illegitimate needs he comes after, he comes at you because all of us have been wired to have needs. That's why the scripture said he meets all of our needs in Christ Jesus. So all of your needs he wants to supply. The enemy tries to deceive you in that, Genesis chapter three. So the minute you begin to say, I see I want or I think I deserve. You're already immediately moving down towards the flesh. To not move towards wisdom is to move towards the flesh. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here, but you, you know this circle right here, and I probably mentioned it last week, but it bears repeating. 
This circle right here can happen so very, very, very fast uh, during the day and so many times it can take place. I see, I want, I think I deserve. I'm gonna guard my rights, protect and defend. I'm gonna blame somebody. The dangerous place is when when we begin pursuing both inwardly and outwardly a satisfaction of a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. So we begin pursuing outside of the plan of God. Now, at any time in this process, we can immediately repent and return and get back up to the top. I mean, you can catch yourself. And really, that's, that's really one of the greatest marks of maturity is how quickly you see you're in the flesh and you, you turn and you move and you get out of that and, and you move up to uh, where you walk in the spirit. So you can almost always bail out, so to speak, and, and get back up to life. The problem becomes when you satisfy a legitimate need in an illegitimate manner, you have a season of satisfaction, you reap what you have sown. I hope I made this clear. You know, really what you reap most of the time is on the inside, there's a complete lack of joy. A lot of times we want to talk about, well, um, you reap what you sow physically. You know, like you can be driving down the road and and, and you get a flat tire and you say, I, I, you know what, I was spinning here this morning and I wasn't nice to my wife and kids. I got a flat tire, I'm reaping what I've sown. That is so stupid, okay? Because what about the guy who's walking with Jesus all morning and he gets a flat tire? I mean, it just, it's kind of like when I had somebody come up to me the other day and he said, my daughter, this was just the other day, there I go, this was really about eight years ago. And, um, and, and he said, his daughter was in this horrific car accident. And he said, you know, the Lord was gracious and she wasn't hurt. And I said, well, would he have ceased being gracious if she'd have died? So you gotta be careful about your statements because when you, when you claim God is gracious because something good happened to you, then you have to be willing to claim the other. He is either gracious all the time or he's not gracious at all. And so be very, very careful about our phrases we use. It's kind of up there with God as my co-pilot. No, he's not. He owns the plane. He owns you. And uh, he doesn't even need you in the plane. So anyways, uh, oftentimes this reaping, the worst part of this reaping is what it does to our souls and our hearts. We don't have time to spend a lot of time there. And then I hope you caught what I said last week if you were here. The issue of the Lord showing you that he wants to meet a legitimate need in a legitimate way, you still have not learned that if you stay down here. So what happens is the reason you start over is because the Lord is always gonna start at the last place you obeyed. So he pushes in, he tests and tries you in legitimate needs. But if you choose to walk in the flesh, then when you get through with this process, you realize I still have not learned the lesson I'm supposed to learn. I haven't grown. I haven't matured. And so as a result of that, you're going to start over in the process. This is why you listen to men in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s say, I cannot find peace. I cannot find satisfaction. Or I keep repeating this thing over and over and over again. It's because every time the Lord begins to test you in legitimate needs, you bolt down here. Okay, so we gotta go to the top of the chart now. So a legitimate need comes into your life. I'll let you decide what that is. In fact, I would encourage you to identify where you feel you are being tested in this season, where you feel you're being pushed in on, uh, where you feel the Lord is sort of developing a blister of sensitivity in your soul. 
Because oftentimes what happens if we're not careful, then it turns into a callous when we really should be paying attention to it. So the Lord has something he's doing in your life. There's a test or a trial. Remember, tests and trials are to show you that what you're standing on, what you're having faith on is sufficient. This is why the Lord initiates testing in your life, to show you he is sufficient. It's why the enemy picks away at you to try to get you to doubt he is sufficient. When the Lord says, I will meet all of your needs according to my riches and glory in Christ Jesus, the enemy is hell bent, no pun intended, on trying to find a way to get you to doubt that. And that's when what you think is a trial turns into a temptation. But we gotta stay at the top of the chart. As soon as a test enters your life, James chapter one tells us what to do. Pray for wisdom. I hope that is a daily prayer in your life every day. I hope you pray for wisdom and pray for wisdom. You pray for your children to have wisdom. As a matter of fact, I, I would submit to you that before you pray for the Lord to do anything in the lives of your family members and your friends, you pray the Lord would give them wisdom. Proverbs 8 and 9, he is the giver of wisdom. Wisdom was there with the Lord at creation. Wisdom was the creative genius behind creation. Pray for wisdom. We have this rock that sits next to our front door that says, be wise. And it's kind of a joke in our house. At least, I don't think it's that funny. The kids think it's hilarious. At least the, the one who still lives there. Um, when, when they walk out, they know exactly what I'm gonna say. There's gonna be two words that are gonna come out of my mouth as soon as they walk out. Be wise. I'm gonna say, be wise, be wise. And they know it and they just, they joke about it. We go to family, you know, you know a whole deal. You go to family vacations and they joke about how stupid you are. But anyways, I, uh, I, you've got to pray for wisdom. Now remember, wisdom is seeing things the way God sees them and ultimately understanding them the way he wants you to understand them. Wisdom is seeing things the way God sees them and ultimately understanding them the way he wants you to understand them. Now you begin to see why wisdom is so critical so that you begin to see your situation the way God wants you to see it. The enemy is trying to distort the vision of your situation, just like he did Eve. He distorted the complete reality and she operated in foolishness rather than wisdom. When we begin to pray for wisdom, we are literally asking the Lord by his Holy Spirit to allow us to see, if, as Paul says in Corinthians, at least dimly to begin to see that God's at work. We desperately need to see the situation from God's perspective. If that helps you better, use that word. In fact, you may even pray, God, help me to see this from your perspective. Let me give you an example. Those of you who have grown kids, your kids start going through situations when they're 21, 22, 25, you know, 30, whatever. And it's a situation you've walked through and you know exactly what they're going through. You guys know what I'm talking about? You tracking with me? And even if they're in junior high or elementary school, you've seen this thing play out and they come to you with the issue and what you long for is for them to see the situation the way you see it, Right? And here's what happens typically. You begin to explain to them their situation, at which time they label you as an idiot and stupid and too old to understand, right? And we do the same thing to God. See, he's the creator of all things. The days ordained for you were written before there was one of them. 
And, and not only has he been through it, so to speak, he created it. So why else wouldn't I pray, God, give me wisdom to see this the way you see it, to understand it the way you want me to understand it, and to learn from it what you want me to learn. So when we go through a situation and you're going through your particular issue, if I refuse to pray for wisdom, I'm literally saying to my father, I got this, I don't need your direction in this. You understand? So now here's what happens. The other thing you must do, you must take up your cross daily and we must die to ourselves. Uh, you probably know this verse. I don't wanna take it for granted though. I won't write it up there to junk up the, bo the board, but write down Galatians chapter two, verse 20. You need to commit that to memory. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, daily dying to my hopes, to my ambitions, and to my dreams and my goals. Does that mean we don't have goals? No, but it means we always put them up to the Lord and say, Lord, you can do whatever you wanna do with these. You can change my direction. You see, I'm trying to live down here, but the Bible says whoever would try to gain his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will gain it. This, all the efforts on the bottom part of the chart are me trying to live. What I'm being called to do is die daily in Christ. But it also requires that I believe his word, that if I die to what I think I want, then I trust that what he wants for me is above and beyond what I could hope or imagine, Ephesians 3, 20 through 22. Critical that... Please understand the flesh battles of the spirit and the spirit battles the flesh. This is a war taking place up here for me to trust that God has something more for me than I would desire for myself. It's tough. I can tell you, and I think you already know this, it is much easier to dwell down here. And here's what you do, what I do. You dwell down here with this in mind. I just wanna stay down here for a minute. If I can just stay down here for a minute, I'll go back up there, okay? But here's the problem. Any time spent down here is too much time spent down here. Any time sowing to the flesh takes place, it robs from what the spirit is gonna do in your life. But all of us know what it is. Once you know this chart, that's kind of the worst part about it. Once you kind of know this chart, you know where you are. And, and you, you, you know you're down there and you can go, I, you know, I like it here for a minute. And, um, and, and this is called spiritual pouting. I guess this is how you spell pouting. I mean, it's just, you just stay down there and stew. Your wife says, what's wrong? Nothing, nothing at all. You want to share with me? No, I'm praying about it. No, you're not. No, you're not. So now you, you see this circle, all this occurs all the time. This is constantly taking place in your life on a daily basis. As soon as this process begins, James and Romans told us that perseverance is critical. And that's when you get into a season of waiting. Now, in the years that we've been working through this, I've learned a couple of things. Number one, this is where most people bail out right here in this school of waiting, okay? Most people get into this area and they think they deserve something better. So there they go. Most people get into a school of waiting and we'll get to the sheet that was handed out to you this morning and they want 
something better than what this school of waiting is giving them. They get into the school of waiting and they see an opportunity and they mistake it for an open door and so they take it and they haven't been walking in the spirit. This is the place most people bail out, okay? And this is, but this is the only place, though, you have to go through this in order to learn what the Lord is trying to teach you. Now you look at the life of Moses, it cost him 40 years in order to be ready. You look at the life of Joseph in Genesis. It took him his entire young adult life until the Lord showed him why he was in prison and why he was sold into prison. Genesis chapter 50, when Joseph says, you meant it for harm, but God meant this for good. Now you can read that Bible story all you want and think it's a sweet story. But for young Joseph to say to his brothers who betrayed him and left him, for him to look at them and say, you meant this for harm, but God meant this for good, meant at an early point, he decided not to spend time down here. And he chose to trust his king and his Lord. So let's talk about the school of waiting. Let's go to the uh, notes that I have in front of you. I would encourage you to jot down John chapter 15. We've talked about John 15 many times in this room. John chapter 15 is, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, the same beareth much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John chapter 15, this whole thing of the vine and the branches is one of the most uh, powerful scriptures. In fact, I was sharing with a friend yesterday about this. It was one of those chance encounters. We were talking about what the Lord is doing. And I shared with him what I've shared with many of you. If you do a little bit of study about vineyards, you soon learn that the most important season in the life of a vineyard is wintertime. And it's a critical season where the energy of the sap, the energy of the vine is concentrated, preparing to be unleashed in the springtime is a critical, critical time, wintertime. In fact, if you visit old family vineyards, not corporate vineyards, but old family vineyards that have literally a vine dresser still in them, they're not very big, they don't produce much during the year because of our, our commercial economy these days, you will find vine dressers intentionally putting to sleep a vine or a vineyard so that he's preparing it for spring. And so the Lord will intentionally take you to a winter time of your soul because only through a winter time of your soul can you become prepared for a harvest of the Spirit. You will go through that. In fact, you can mark my word on this. At some point, if not many points, even in a crowd of people, the Lord will drive you to a season of isolation with him and you in order to teach you that he is all you need and then take you into a season of harvest. Your heavenly father, Hebrews chapter 12, he disciplines those he loves. And I would encourage you to read through the scriptures again. He drove his own son into a wilderness for 40 days. He drove Joseph into isolation. He, he allowed everything to be taken from Job. You, you will be hard pressed to find any person that God did amazing things through. Paul, Jesus said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. And for three years, he sent him into isolation in what we call Asia Minor until he was ready. And then Barnabas showed up. Now you may think, 
That sounds so cruel. No, it's not. In fact, it's a great blessing because he is preparing you for more. But this is why most people bail out here. Let's look at this, this sheet of paper I have for you. John Darby, you, you shouldn't know who he is. He's a very old dead person. Uh, he said this, it is God's way to set people aside after their first start that self-confidence may die. Word of caution, because we do this in youth ministry and we do it to adults. As soon as someone experiences a personal renewal or revival in the Lord, we oftentimes take their glorious testimony and put it in front of people. Which what that does is sets them up for the attack of the enemy and destruction. What God does is puts them on a shelf and isolates them in order to prepare them for a greater day. See, we, we want to promote God demotes most of the time. And then he puts in places of influence. This next quote, I do not know who said this. I've looked and looked and looked. I've, I've read it years ago and it was not attributed to anyone. But some have been betrayed into professing perfection or full deliverance because at the time they speak, they are happy and confident in the Lord. They forget that it is not a present experience that ensures fruit unto maturity but a patient continuance in well-doing. It is, it is very normal in the plan of God for you to have excitable times. You can, call them uh, you can call them peaks, but then there are valleys and valleys are intended by the Lord. Valleys are ordained by the Lord. Darkness is, is planned by the Lord for you to walk through in order to trust the shepherd. You study Psalm 23 and you learn that a shepherd will leave the flock under the care of someone else as he goes to, tre to find the path they're going to take to greater pasture. And that's why when, he says, when it says, he leads me through these, these valleys of the shadow of death, he does not lead through a valley of shadow of death. He has not already scouted and walked through. This Proverbs, Psalm 23 is not a psalm of some shepherd walking through the valley going, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. It is... It is a shepherd walking through a valley who has not only, in, your, in this case, created the valley, but who has walked it. And if you will follow him, will take you to a greater place of pasture. But we as sheep get freaked out and turn around and run back to a place we came from. We bail out. Let me show you a couple of things. Number one, if you're in a season of waiting, recognize that growth, opportunity, and change are at hand. Just recognize it. And you know if you are in a season uh, such as this. Recognize that the Lord is preparing you. He's preparing to grow you. He may be preparing you for another opportunity. He is certainly preparing you for change. And change should become a very common part of your life as a follower of Jesus. Number two, if you're in a season of waiting, resist the natural inclination against waiting and trusting. Now, let me, let me have you look these up with me. I've got them written down. Let's look up Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. This is uh, what's an amazing passage that we're about to look at. Genesis chapter 17. We're into the early stages of this walk between 
God and Abram or Abraham and Sarah. And look with me in verse 15. So Genesis 17, verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, or let's just call her Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face. Now watch this. I know you've read this. And if you haven't, don't go, I'm a loser. Just don't do that. Now you're getting to read it. Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Now wrap your arms around that for a minute. God Almighty in a discussion with Abraham. He says, by the way, I'm gonna, your, your wife Sarah is gonna have children. There's, there's descendants are gonna come from her. Kings are gonna come from her. And Abraham laughs at God. And listen to, his, listen to what he says. Abraham fell on his face. He laughed and he said to himself, shall a child really be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now, think about how many times we do this. Think about how many times you've heard me refer to Ephesians chapter three that God wants to do above and beyond you could ever hope or imagine. And you, you, you snicker under your breath at me. And then you snicker literally to the heavenly father and think, really, he's gonna do something in my life? I mean, he's laughing and saying, seriously, God, you're gonna, you're gonna, I'm gonna have children. I mean, this is before Viagra. So anyways, um, look at verse 18. This is the tragedy. Watch this. And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. Now Ishmael was born out of an illegitimate relationship. And Abraham said, hey God, would you just settle? Just use Ishmael. And the Lord tells, not in so many words, but if I might paraphrase it, he says, Abraham, you are asking me to do less in your life because Abraham didn't trust. He was down here. Really, this can't be possible. Are you kidding me? And what we do in a school of waiting is the enemy continues to pick away. Remember, when you're in a school of waiting, the enemy doesn't stop picking. The enemy doesn't go, oh, I see you're in a school of waiting. Great place to be. He just keeps picking on you and causing you to doubt God could do above and beyond all you could ever hope or imagine. Some of you guys have come off an amazing season where the Lord has blessed you. And contrary to what you might think, but now you're seeing it happen, he is now pushing you into a valley of darkness. And the temptation is to turn and run and go back to what you had or what you think is enough rather than saying, oh my Lord, you have so much more. Let me keep going through the list. I think there's another passage I have for you. How about Exodus 13? So next door neighbor to Genesis, let's look at Exodus 13. Real quick, Exodus 13. Exodus 13. Find your way to verse 17. Pharaoh let the people go. I'm in verse 17 of chapter 13. 
Pharaoh let the people go. God did not lead them. Boy, listen to this. God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. It would have been more convenient. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. He intentionally led them on a more difficult path and straight towards an impossibility. Listen, he is never leading you to a place of your capability. He is never leading you to a place of possibility. He is leading you to a place that will stretch you and cause you to trust him in order to grow you. He is leading you to a place that you would have to say, that seems somewhat impossible. To which then you are in a place of watching him do more than you could ever hope or imagine. He's not in the practice of leading you to a place to see how talented you have become. But he is in the practice of leading you to a place to see how capable he is through you. So your joy is made complete and his glory is made known. But, and I've, I've got it listed there, go to chapter 14, chapter 14 of Exodus and go to verse 10. So he's led them through the wilderness to a place of impossibility. Verse 10, Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out to Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone so we can serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. All of that to tell you, resist the inclination against waiting and trusting when the Lord pushes you to a place where you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not sure I'm in for that because he has so much more in mind. Number three, <clears throat> confess sin and affirm obedience. In other words, strengthen a lifestyle of abiding. All I mean by this is when you, when you begin to say, Lord, give me wisdom in this situation. I'm gonna die to myself. I wanna live for you and not for myself. And I wanna trust you. And I feel like I'm waiting on you. Then just maintain a posture of great sensitivity to sin in your life. That doesn't mean you've got to go stand on a corner and talk about, I mean, just a place of great sensitivity where you're confessing to the Lord, where you feel like you're walking in the flesh and not the spirit. Remember, confession is just coming into agreement with. You're not telling the Lord something he doesn't know about your life. So confession is seeing your sin the way the Lord sees it and confessing it to him, seeing your life the way he sees it. And you also might want to step back and take a little inventory. Am I obeying the Lord in every area of my life? Am I being obedient in giving? Am I being obedient in serving? Am I being obedient at work, in my lifestyle, in my language, and the things I do? Just check obedience. This is, point three is not an invitation to guilt. It's an invitation into freedom so that you can be ready, okay? Number four, beware of substitutes 
All of these are the same thing, but they're kind of separate. So beware of substitutes, going back to Egypt. And then I have a, a, a comment there. Cemented paradigms of experience. Here's what I mean by that. I do, I do not think that biblically, in fact, I know biblically, the Lord does not set you up to just repeat one's, well, let me say it this way. You're not supposed to experience the Lord right here on whatever today is, November something, 2013. And then when you get down the road and you sense the Lord is doing something in your life, you don't run back to today and go, well, it's gonna be just like that. Oftentimes what we do is we have an experience with the Lord and we cement the paradigm of that experience and then we judge all other experiences by that one experience rather than growing in our walk with the Lord. So what we do, and the church is highly guilty of this, it's called revivals. We gin up an occasion to make us feel closer to the Lord. And then we sing songs and everybody floods the altar and people get saved for the fifth or sixth time in their life. And then they confess their sins and they cry and they lay their dip down again and they lay their cigarettes down again and they flush their whiskey down the toilet and they burn their albums. And then all of a sudden, they, about six months later, all the same stuff shows up again. So they go try to repeat an experience rather than growing in the Lord. Be very careful that you don't gin up and try to repeat experiences. Jesus said it this way, and I put it down there for you in Matthew chapter nine. You cannot put new wine into old wineskins. He does a new work in your life and he continues to do new works in your life. Stop comparing what he is doing into, in your life to what he has done in your life. He is moving you and growing you. And so when you get to a school of waiting, don't try to gin up another feeling of God moving in your life. Okay, let's keep, let's, let me move on with you. Oh, and I, I put there the fed factor. Um, the reason I put the fed factor is because one of the things that people will do in this school of waiting is they'll find new churches or they'll, they'll, they'll go to the bookstore and they start desperately trying to find someone who speaks into their life a way that makes them feel good but 2 Timothy chapter four talks about itching ears and wanting to hear something. I'm not saying you, you shouldn't have people speaking into your life in a school of waiting, but I'm gonna tell you the most important thing that can happen in a school of waiting is you, the Lord, and his word. So let's go on to the, the, the last part. A few things to consider putting into practice when you know you have checked into the school of waiting. Number one, silently serve. Uh, a lot of people check out. They say, oh, I'm, in, I, I'm just in a season with the Lord. I need, to, I need to slow down. No, you don't. You need to serve. It's called rehab. You, you need to serve. You need to get in service. Now, you may have to back away from public service and you may need to serve silently somewhere, but you need to serve. Number two, you need to intentionally rest. A place of trust, no matter the extreme of your temperament. What I mean by that is some of us can't wait to rest and you probably need to rest with a little more action. Some of us never rest and you probably need to rest with less action. You know what it is for you to rest. And in case you don't, it's what you push against all the time. So you need to rest. You need to find a place to rest. Elijah had to rest. Number three, spend time in prayer and reflection. 
Whatever season you need to, I'm hurrying through this so we can get back to the chart. Number four, you might even choose to fast, a spiritual cleanse. Now, when I say fast, that could be a fast from food, that could be a fast from television, that could be a fast from electronics, that could be a fast from your iPad, uh, that could be a fast from a number of things. Whatever it is that you fast from, make sure it's something that when you're not doing it, you realize what I should be doing is being in God's word and being with him. And number five, trust a friend or a brother with your journey. The scriptures speak clearly. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. It doesn't say there is a small group that sticks closer than a brother, okay? It doesn't say there's a football team that sticks closer than a brother. There is a friend. And, and that's another thing you can pray into your, the lives of your family is that, that God would walk that friend into their life. There is a friend that's a brother that you can trust with your journey. Not everybody. You don't just take everybody to lunch and start lurching into your journey. Find a brother who will labor with you in prayer will labor with you through the issue. And you know, oh, you mean an accountability partner. I hate that phrase, accountability partner. It, it's, it, there, is it wrong? No. I just get tired of the fact that everybody's got accountability partners, but our city's no different because of the lives of men. I mean, we got accountability groups out our ears around here, but I don't see our city changing. I mean, you can have accountability partners so you can all sit around a table and talk about that you looked at a Playboy or whatever. You can have an accountability partner so you can all sit around the table and say, I yelled at my wife or I did something like this or, you know, I did this. But the problem is accountability partners are not leading us to a, repentance, a repentant posture that's leading to a changed city. I mean, you know, it, it, so, and that's why when people say, when I say things I say about revivals, America has had more revival services than any nation and all nations combined but has yet to see a revival in centuries. I mean, I, when you go to cities that say, man, do you remember that revival we had? That's not a definition of a revival to say, do you remember that revival we had? A definition of a revival is to say, this is a result of what God began years ago. And God is moving in your life to not just revive you, but to renew you, restore you, and to move you. And then this next phrase, finally, be ready to take action. Quickly go to uh, Joshua chapter 14. Joshua chapter 14. Caleb, this dude is awesome. So you know, Joshua and Caleb were the only two spies who thought they could go take the land. And uh, Caleb was around 40 years old when uh, that happened. Joshua chapter 14, find your way to verse 10. Now you wanna talk about a brother who, who lived right here. Oh, one more thing. The Lord may leave you, he may leave you in the school of waiting in a particular area of your life and you never see what you were waiting for in this life. You say, where do you read that? Hebrews 13, or Hebrews 11, in the hallway of faith. Now you need to meditate on that one for a while because I'm looking at you. You're either asleep or, or something, but he may leave you in a school of waiting 
which is actually a school of trusting so that you lay the foundation and you're waiting for what he will do after you've passed because of what you have left behind in your waiting. Joshua 14, verse 10. Caleb uh, walks up to Joshua. You know, they've been friends for a long time. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years. Since the time the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now I'm 85 years old. Check this phrase out. And I'm as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and for coming. What a dude. I mean, what an absolute stud. Watch this. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day 45 years ago. What are you waiting for? Give me the hill country the Lord spoke on that day. You heard on that day how the Anakim, Anakim were there, giants, with great fortified cities. Listen to this. It may be the Lord will be with me. He still anticipates he might die. But he doesn't want to miss the opportunity to see God do something great. So he says, it may be the Lord will be with me and I'll drive him out just like the Lord said. I mean, 45 years, a word of the Lord, dying to spinning around down here because he, he spent 45 years living with losers. He did. He didn't spend 45 years with a bunch of people who wanted to do great things for God. He spent 45 years with a bunch of people who would whine and complain and bitch and moan and, Sorry, and, and, they, and just this whole thing. And for 45 years, all he's wanting to do is pick a fight to see God do what God promised him. What are you waiting for? What dream has God implanted in you? 30 years ago that someone squashed or that you walked away from in a school of waiting. 45 years later, he's still not sure he's gonna win but he's itching for a fight. What a dude. I love that. I mean, I just, they ought to make a movie about that guy and make sure Hollywood makes it because Christian movies are always corny. So anyways, um, and here's what happens on the end of this and we gotta go. Christ is exalted. I am changed. Bible calls it Christ is formed in me. Christ is sufficient. Real quick. And this is not a linear equation, so to speak. These things all occur in this process. Christ is made much of. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life and I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. John chapter three, he must increase, I must decrease. Jesus is exalted. I have been changed. A legitimate need that exposed a work of God in my life has been met in ways I could have never imagined and my character has changed.
My life has changed. My, my outlook has changed. My perceptions have changed. And I have learned through this process that he is sufficient because the love of God, Romans 5, is being poured out within my heart through the Holy Spirit that is within me. He is seen as sufficient. And then, let me finish. I'm over, I'm an overdue, I apologize, but let me just do this real quick. Then he puts someone in your path, 2 Corinthians chapter one, who needs to hear what you learned through this process. But then watch this. He initiates another action because there's still more growth to occur. You say, when does this stop? When you breathe your last. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these men and for their attention, for your love for us, your grace and your mercy. Bless them as they preach today and the way they live and the way they talk. May your mercy be rich. May your grace be sufficient. And may your peace be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great, great day. Thanks for your attention. I'll see you next year.